my name is Adam Canal, and I am a collaborative composer. Join me in the search for a career in classical music. This is the Making Noise podcast. I love the the, the idea of it, like a lot of like they had the saxophone studio class, just like this collaboration through not necessarily performance. It's so it's a pretty neat thing that ever dealing with and being able to make it work yeah and that's the great thing too actually like sort of the silver lining within well i don't even say silver lining but one of the upsides with what's happening with the the quarantine is like being able to do this it's like you know what Let, let's reach out to people let's 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 just talk you know <laughs> yeah there's so much to be gained because we're so in our like focus like this is my performance I got coming up. This is what I need to practice. This is what I have to write. This is what I have to publish, even if, if I are like a scholar. But now everything is like, how can I keep building and growing and staying optimistic with none of what I was doing for the past X amount of years? So, good well, thing we have technology the way we do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I, like, I like that. I like what you said there. I mean, it's it's definitely providing us like, you know, being able to have this conversation or, or whoever else you're communicating with and then, and then reconnecting with everyone and, and just sort of like checking in. Cause now I, I feel like this could lead, this can um, sort of grow and continue where, where now it'll just sort of be commonplace between uh, people within our community to just keep stay to stay connected. And so like zoom calls and whatnot, even when things, you know, when we can start actually interacting on a regular basis again, without the concern of a, a virus, um, I, I imagine, I, I hope that something like this would continue. You know? Yeah. No, absolutely. Because it's kind of forced everyone to become adept to technology. Like, I'm not very technologically inclined, and I know there are some people that are super, super techy that were like, this was normal for them, but everyone has been forced into being able to do it. So I hope it, hope it becomes a normal means of communication. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's that saying? Um, necessity is the mother of invention, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah we all have to adapt. So, um, yeah, but so the other day, I don't know what made me check it out, but I, 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 uh, I pulled up the, the recording of initial contact yeah. and I listened to it and I was following the score and everything. And I was like, I was so excited because you guys just nailed it. <laughs> like it's it's such a it's such an abstract piece, especially stepping outside of standard notation, you know. Right. And, and so I just I just sort of wanted to sit down and talk and just yeah. kind of like revisit it and like get our head like get ourselves back in that headspace of tw in 2015 and in June of 2015 when we when we first met five years ago almost like yeah yeah actually it was over five years ago <laughs> crazy man yeah it, no, it, it, it is super, crazy super cool yeah, that whole that whole two-week thing like it's something i will never forget and it was like a a stepping point in my journey as a musician into like this new world that i didn't know existed and, and and stuff like that so yeah it was super cool super memorable how now i had a similar uh um like experience where where it was so impactful for me that it was like you said a stepping point but like how was how was it a stepping point for you like what well, what did it do in regards to you as a musician and a, and a saxophonist yeah so like i went to a relatively not relatively a very small undergraduate university where like chamber music was sort of there but it wasn't and like especially mixed chamber like we had a couple saxophone quartets and there's a couple brass ensembles but it's a very i would consider it a traditional school of thought with like their music and and no one really steps out of this classical canon box like you play the standard band rep you play the standard solo rep and i got the whole thing came to be is because dr adams quartet the australia consort did a master class at svsu i played in it and she's like, oh, you're really into sort of contemporary music. I was like, yeah, I love it. And I, and I want to like fulfill that spot that I'm not necessarily filling here at my undergrad. Um, and she invited me to come to Nifnor and I did it. I just, I whim. I was like, yeah, let's, let's do it. Um, <laughs> and just like, 
being exposed to these kind of musicians, like like-minded, like-minded musicians and people that are there for the common goal of just making music opposed to like, and I, I would like to think that everyone at, in college that's a music major is there to make music, but some of it's formality. Like I need to do this because I need to do this to get the degree to be mm -hmm. a band director or to be a performer or to do X, Y, and Z that you can do with a music degree. Where here it was all about just getting together and making music and, and collaborating together. And I had never done anything like that. I was very much within like the first two days realized I was punching above my weight, so to speak, <laughs> in regards of just like the expectations of performance and and the understanding of how chamber ensembles work, um, just the verbal communications that are needed. Um, but yeah, just all of that, just like, I felt like I played my part. I did not necessarily exceed, exceed expectations in my mind. Um, I was very underprepared for, for all of that, but it really lit a fire to pursue and continue learning the, these ideas and, and styles of music and, and collaborations like chamber ensembles and stuff. So it really just kind of set the tone for me to work on that stuff, which then ended up leading for me to want to pursue a graduate degree. Mm. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot in there that um, I think a lot of people, their experience of Neef North is, is I have no doubt is similar because it was, uh, like you were saying, like it was such a um, high intensity of, of the work ethic. Like you had to be, you know, especially as performers, you were rehearsing all day, every day, and then performing like every other night. Yeah. You know? and, uh, and it was so great, like, you know, you said you were, you were, you were hitting above your weight class and stuff like that, but I thought you handled it completely like a professional, you know, like I, I never would have thought that you were in any sort of sense, like, um, uncomfortable or anything tired and exhausted. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And it was, it was just one of those things. And, and I feel like I try to carry this mentality into anything I do, even if I'm well in, um, above my head, just, to know what I can do well and try to get better at what I can. So like in some of the pieces, not necessarily initial contact that I played in, like I really made sure what I didn't know or wasn't comfortable with that I made it as good as I could. And the stuff that I was good at, I just kind of like kind of glossed over a little bit. Not that I wasn't prepared of it, but just making sure that I could present a professional product. Um, even though I was uncomfortable with some of it, um, from a preparation standpoint. Yeah, well, even like you said before, your, um, your upbringing in, in, uh, uh, in Saginaw, like you had a, a kind of more traditional background and stuff and stepping into some of these things. I mean, even though it was, uh, there was a lot of minimalist music like Philip Glass and such, um, there was still quite a bit that was, I mean, well, even that though, like I remember when you played, uh, was it like music in fifths or something like that? Yeah, yep, that's the one that I was on. Right, that, that piece, like, I couldn't, the stamina for that, man. The stamina was like, oh yeah. my God. <laughs> and, and, and that also sparked a whole thought of just like mental focus. Cause the moment, the exact moment, if you quit focusing, cause I know I had done it in rehearsal a couple times cause like it'd be like eight or nine at night and we'd been rehearsing all day. As soon as I like for a millisecond wasn't engaged in what was going on, it was done. I was like out of it. So that even that like was a learning experience into just everyday practice now of how to stay mentally engaged the whole time yeah so there's a lot of things that occurred those two weeks that just really set up the continued growth of my musicianship right well that's interesting i i didn't think of it like that so much like, like you said that that focus then translated into into how you have to focus within your practice sessions and rehearsals and such um mm -hmm. How, so how has that, I mean, now that you've finished grad school and stuff, like, I imagine there's been a lot of shifts and, and pivots that you've made throughout that time, but, but what did that moment do for you in regards to where you are now, would you say? Like, what, what is one thing, if you, can, if you can grab onto one thing from that time at Neefnor from 2015, like, what, what, what do you think that thing might be that, that has made you the musician you are right now? Um, yeah, that's a really great question, and I think it's something that I... I still struggle with to this day um, in my preparation is it doesn't have to be perfect. Mm. 
strive for perfection and and we want to play it as good as we can but we're always growing as musicians and we're always getting better at something so the idea of just putting on a product as good as you can at the time that you have to do it because with neve north there were like you said there were concerts every other day yeah and you're prepping sometimes huge work sometimes not so huge but like it was literally play a concert that night and like Ooh, yay, we had an awesome concert. And then literally the next morning, you're like, all right, shift gears and, and we have two days until we perform this piece. Um, and just getting that as good as you can as a performer at the time you are in your career for that performance. Because like you could spend your whole lifetime trying to make a, per a piece perfect, but I don't think a piece is ever perfect and ne never will, it would never will be. But I think that's what makes music so cool is, and, and unique is that we're always striving to make ourselves better mm. and we try to never become complacent. Mm. So that really was a huge thing I took out of that is just try to go from performance to performance and do as well as you can at the time you at the place you are at that current time as a musician. That's, that's fantastic, man. I, I mean, that, that totally sounds like a, a, a performer's boot camp in a way, you know? <laughs> yeah, because yeah, like we, we as musicians, and, and I, I think I can speak for a vast majority of musicians, is we listen to the recordings of, of the masters or the, or the professors, and we think that's how we have to play it. This is the level that I have to achieve. And you might be able to do that. You might not be able to do that, but everyone's at a different point in their journey. And you just have to realize that this is where I'm at, this is where I've come from. That's the big thing that people don't acknowledge is where I've come from. They're looking at how short I am from where I need to be. And just like, okay, I've come from here. So that's awesome. So now what do I need to do to take the next step to get to here um, in, in our playing? And because we compare ourselves. I mean, that's just the, that's what keeps us driven is listening to uh, these professors and these professionals and trying to achieve what, where they are but we're just at a point in our musical journey. And, and then through all of that, it's just kind of relating back to Niefenorp, like just doing what you can at that given point for that performance. That's, that's uh, yeah, man, that, there's a lot in that right there. I mean, especially the whole idea of critique is, you know, going to music school and stuff, all of us as performers, composers, you know, um, music educators and everything, it's like, we're actually trained to critique and and be self-critical and in many ways that that can be damaging you know because it's like you're always thinking about oh my god this isn't as good as it could be and this needs to be better but like you were just saying you know it just needs to be good enough you know yeah and i i think i think a part of that is it makes me think about composers like um um Boulez and uh bruckner right? Like they were notorious for making revisions in their works because like most artists, it's like you, you look back on this thing that you did. Like if you did a recording and you could look back and be like, oh no, that was terrible phrasing or like the micro phrasing within that was way too much, you know? And, and so they'll go back and they'll revise it because they're like, this could be better. Um, but then there are artists too. Like I, I hear this with a lot of actors and actors often say, I don't watch any of the movies that I make because, and I imagine it's because like the product, it's done. Right. And they'll look back at it and be like, the way I delivered that line was trash, you know? And, but they can't do anything about it because the product is made. Right. So it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think with like listening to old recordings, it's, it's the same way and like, oh, I missed that note or that note was out of tune. But you're focusing on one little aspect of a 15 minute concerto or something where if you were to take a recording of that concerto, you know, three years earlier and compare them, there'd be so much on the one negative. Um, I don't know, it is, it's, it's something I think all musicians struggle with and, and we all kind of cope with. And it's just finding that balance to make it not debilitating to the point where you just become depressed about your, your ability to make music or write music. Mm, that's, that's a really good point, yeah. Yeah, I, I I know even like for me personally, that's that's one of the struggles I have. It's be, it's because like I'm always in, you know that that saying, um, you're looking at the trees and not the forest sort of thing, 
you know so you're you're stuck in the weeds but you can't see the bigger picture and, and being inside of that every day it can it can be it can be um uh you know self-debilitating i guess but that's that's great advice man and and um and i think you you're making some really great like you're dropping some bombs <laughs> yeah and, and and then one last thing to add on to that is i think perfection is not necessarily the thing to strive for because by trying to achieve perfection in regards to like intonation and articulation, you lose the emotion sometimes, mm. not all the time, but sometimes. So, so again, striking that balance of playing emotionally and, and with feeling opposed to micromanaging every technical aspect of a given passage. That's another thing that uh, through like my reflection, I didn't realize it at the time, but Niefenorf is like, played this note, played in time, played in tune, but then you lose some some part of that music, even though technically, if you were to like put it into a computer, 100%, you got 100% on your test, it loses something. Right. Yeah, well, I, I think uh, that's something I thought a little bit about, and I think what it actually loses is the human element. Mm -hmm. um, like, like, you know, you band, know band, like um, Animals as Leaders? I'm not familiar now. Or, um, I don't know, I mean, really a lot of mainstream pop music is it's so so produced right to, to the point where it's like this polished product and so like auto-tune and um uh, quantization and all these things that try to perfectly align the music from a uh within the software that it's being recorded into it almost makes it sound robotic you know and I'm not trying to criticize any pop music or anything like that. Sure. Um, but what I am kind of pointing out with this is, is it's like, like what you were just saying, you know, like that level of perfection and then being able to, to be okay with whatever it is that you're doing as best as you can at that time. Mm -hmm. um, and I think music like that, where it's like very produced and stuff for me is, a, is kind of sterile because um, it doesn't have that human element of imperfection. Right. You know, uh, like the little subtleties of, of how a note enters and like, you know, if you're playing from Niente and you're doing this multiphonic, there's going to be like probably some air present, you know, mm -hmm. and then as that multiphonic grows, the air might, will probably be less or something less present. And, and so, um, and that's something that you're going to get just from the, the fact that a human is making this thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But um, you mentioned something earlier that you said, you know, trying to perfectly get the, the notes in tune and getting all the right rhythms and stuff and, and, uh, and you know, the interpretation of the piece, whatever. Um, it's funny you say that because, like, none of those things so much is present in initial contact. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that kind of, the piece kind of exposes every one of those elements in, in the sense of indeterminacy, is, is there is no quote-unquote perfect way to do it, which, which is super cool, and, and I never played anything that was indeterminate except for, like, that middle school band piece where there's, like, pick-your-own-note-for-one-note kind of thing, but mm. yeah, that, that was something I'd never been exposed to, never, I kind of, like, read about it in a book, in my history books about like all this indeterminate music and and allowing the performer to choose um was was another new experience that i experienced and even was was working on initial contact right yeah well that, that's that's interesting man um i i'm curious like what was what was your thoughts when when you first had the score and like and and we're looking at it? like what was did you remember what your experience was with that yeah, because we were in the same dorm area, and, and I saw you working on it, and it was just like, my thoughts were, how am I going to do this? And, and regardless <laughs> of, like, and giving it what you wanted, also, while also satisfying what I think is good for it, for the, for the piece and performing it as I want. And then the second thought is, how in the world are we going to do this together? <laughs> um, but again with no experience like 
I look at a standard piece of music, it's like the rhythms are there, the notes are there, the dynamic, like it's, it's reading a book word for word. It tells you what you need to do mm-hmm. where this is the complete opposite. It, it's like, here's about what I want you to do. Right. Um, so yeah, just my, my first thought was like, how am I going to do this? <laughs> <laughs> um, while, while still giving it the justice that it deserves, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, totally. Um, that's that I, I would I would have probably had the same exact thought. I, I I probably would have been frightened. Like I don't know what the hell to do with this man. <laughs> like, <laughs> but um, but that was something. One thing that I appreciated so much with this is um, all of like you well, as in the performers, like you, Amanda, Eric, and Kevin. Like all of you, just you like jumped right in. You dug it up and like you took it. You know, and um, one, one, one thing that I, I, I love, <laughs> I love the one memory I have, I think it was the first rehearsal in, in like that, you know, that little room we were in. Yeah. And um, I think, wasn't um, Allison was the coach, right? Yep. Yep. Dr. Adams. Yeah. Yeah. Um, by the end of the rehearsal, there was just ripped newspaper everywhere. <laughs> yeah. I remember maybe the first rehearsal after we were like, all right. Let's go find some more newspaper. <laughs> we have rehearsal again tomorrow. Um, yeah. Yeah, man. That was, it was something. Like, I think we all came in like, all right, super open-minded. And then you were super flexible with, with what you were looking for, which was awesome. Opposed to like, this is exactly what I want. Mm-hmm. And, and as a collaborative effort, we all just had fun with it and made, made something happen with it. Yeah. Oh man. That, that's, it's, uh, it's, it was such a cool thing. I mean, like, like you were saying earlier with, with Neefnorf that the whole, the whole community aspect of it, I mean, where there was rehearsals each day, performances every other night, but we every night we would almost go out to get drinks and stuff and like hang out and everything. So it was like, I, I think all of that sort of bled together to create these, like, um, you know, it, it like expedited the process of, of building relationships with people. So then when we finally went back into rehearsals and stuff, it was like, we all felt a little bit more comfortable with one another. We were that much closer to understanding what it is that we're doing, you know, uh, in, in, in this sort of accelerated way, you know? Yeah. Um, Cause like I've played with like even community bands or, or hired for other gigs and you show up and you have, if you have a rehearsal, like you show up, you rehearse, you go home. Like you don't even, sometimes don't even get to know the names of everyone that you're working with. And, and Neefnorf was like, you get to be with all these people for two weeks and you get to know who they are, where they're from and try to relate where you're from and what you've done and learn from their experiences as maybe they can also learn from yours. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like a huge melting pot of musicians. Cause there are people from all over the country yeah <laughs> yeah i was i mean w- one of the things you said earlier is totally resonates with me when, when you said that um uh being in this environment with like-minded people you know and and like that was a, exactly what i got too i mean even within our, our 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 suite that you and i had it was me you greg and then joe was laroco right laroco or laroco yeah laroco yeah yeah and um and like all of us vibed really well. And then, you know, um, Eric uh, uh, Redderer, or I don't know how to say his last name, the percussionist, yeah. um, uh, Hannah Meyer, the cellist, like uh, Jordan, percussion, right? Like yeah. all of us, you know, it was there, like all of us just, we just clicked really well, you know? And there were, of course, a lot of other people too. And then the faculty as well that were there. I remember uh, Andrea Lodge and, um, uh, uh, Jay Eckhart and and uh, um, uh, just, just sort of every. I mean, it was yeah, that the, the whole thing, just getting to work with people who everyone is just so interested in in, in creating this new music and stuff. You know, um, that was that was one of the yeah. biggest things that I got from that. And like, and obviously today, like here you and I are, we're still talking. You know, like five yeah. years later. Yeah. That's the awesome thing about music too is is you do a performance or you collaborate with somebody one time for one thing at one place 
And that's not necessarily the end of that collaboration, even if it was literally barely getting to know their names and you moving on, because it's such a small niche community that it's it's all about these connections. Mm-hmm. You never know what's going to lead to what. That's so true. Man. They're going to cross. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, obviously, like with our with our 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 history and stuff like that, it's like because of Neath North, you and I became pals. And then you were like, hey, man, you want to write me a piece for my senior recital? I'm like, let's do it. And then that was the birth of Crepuscular Light. Yeah. And, and like, for me as a composer, that's actually been one of my most performed pieces. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, and, 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 and today, like, we're still working on, on some projects together. And so, um, but all that came from, from both of us applying to a festival in Knoxville, Tennessee, that it was our, our first sort of exposure to any of this sort, like this whole world, you know? Yeah, and then small world, because you were from New Jersey, you end up doing a, uh, your graduate degree at Bowling Green, which is closer to where I was, and then <laughs> I did my graduate degree with a graduate of Bowling Green and just this whole intertwined community of, of music and everything, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so crazy, I mean, I say, this, I say this all the time to people in the new music community, but it's true, is that the, the new music community, it's just, it's so small, like, like the six degrees of se- separation, or six degrees of separation from one person to the next, it's not that far, you know? No. I mean, like, all of us are only so far away from like, I don't know, Philip Glass, you know, yeah. or like, <laughs> You know, even you, like you, you did that thing for Steve Reich, mm-hmm. you know, like, yeah, like two degrees of separation. Now what? Not even like you guys maybe are like getting coffee. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. And it, it's crazy just how everything works. Cause like Jordan ended up doing some, a performance at Oakland where I was doing my graduate degree. And I was like, Oh man, crazy small world. And then like, and then Dr. Zula came into a sabbatical semester there and you would, had contact with him at Bowling Green now you're both living in Chicago and it's just like it's it's a world that just ever evolves it's it's incredible yeah yeah it's it's incredibly exciting too for that reason um and just sort of watching how everyone you know the paths that everyone takes and what we're all doing and stuff but I mean um but yeah and that's why like when I look back at at Neef when I think back to Neef North that summer and like working through initial contact and stuff it's like, like such a cherished time to think about for me, and and this piece specifically, like in in my catalog of works, it's the only piece I've ever written that does what it does. It's the only piece I've written that, well, I have written like maybe one or two other pieces that uses tablature notation. This is the only one I've written that strictly uses tablature notation. You know, where it's like the act like the the notation is telling you the actions that you make not the sound you're making right like where's which is standard notation um and and kind of looking back at it it's it's made it it, it, it like it makes me think a lot about you know the like you said a moment ago like the 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 trajectory of that all of us are taking really but like you and i um as individuals and as collaborators and stuff um but so i was looking at the score and i'm gonna see if i can share my screen with you because i have it pulled up right here uh let's see here share screen all right so can you see this right here yeah all right i'm gonna let's see yeah now we're now we're now we're going big so here's your part the performance notes for your part yeah and um i was looking at this and i was like oh my god i'm such a prick (laughs) like so just to if if we end up sharing this with the world and posting on some some you know whatever youtube whatever just to give a brief explanation real quick so this is this is the staff that the saxophone is reading right yes and this line here and this line here represents as i wrote position of the mouthpiece and air pressure so what it basically means is that these boxes wherever they're positioned within this space is where the mouth should be positioned on the mouthpiece so the closer to this line that means it's going to be the tip of the mouthpiece 
and then closer to this line means like full mouthpiece. And it's all explained right here. But if I recall, didn't we sort of eliminate that for the performance, that whole idea? Yeah, well, what we ended up doing because of just the, the constraints for one rehearsal and two, how quickly some of this technique moves by is we replicated it with more bottom jaw, mm. replicating movement to, to emulate the tones that that mouthpiece movement would give in regards of like the tip of the mouthpiece will give more of a fuzzier sort of unfocused sound but like not full resonance where more mouthpiece would be uncontrollable spread sound and uh we try to emulate that more with with air pressure and and just overall embouchure shape and like bottom jaw position to try to emulate that but like looking at the the little snippet you have there i mean all that goes by in 10 seconds <laughs> yeah <laughs> so so trying to replicate that within the context of the register section um mm -hmm. is what we tried to do again like we we had i don't i can't even remember the exact amount of rehearsals we had to produce this not problem. enough no 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 <laughs> i don't mean that i don't mean that in, sorry that came out wrong that came out bad <laughs> no no yeah i mean it was it was only two or three i think like two hour rehearsals plus outside practicing um so just again trying to make the product as good as it can in that given point um but yeah so we we kind of adjusted that accordingly to make it set the performance up for more of a successful performance yeah yeah exactly and that's exactly what i meant too with my comment i mean because it's like like something like this requires just so much rehearsal you know and and uh yeah that's exactly that was that was what i was um um kind of asking right there too um yeah i mean because like yeah exactly this happens in the course of 10 seconds right here and and because all these things sort of happen in a relative temporal you know in, in relative time span and then not only that are you worrying about what your your embouchure is doing the register staff which acts in a similar way where these lines that stem down from this these vertical lines that stem down from this horizontal line represent relative pitch so the closer to this bottom line here the lower the pitch the closer to the line up here the higher the pitch so it's like you're thinking about if we were to play this as accurately as it's, as it's represented in the score, you're thinking about where your mouth is positioned on the mouthpiece, how much air pressure you're using. These circles represent the amount of air presence in the sounds, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then, um, and then also the register staff. So like, is it a held note? What is the pitch? Is it glissing like this slanted line here? And then the techniques within this box here, which, you know, this Z, I remember that was growling. I think this was teeth on reed, this yep. one? Or teeth on mouth. Oh, uh, yeah, teeth on, on reed. Yep, you're right. Yeah. So it's like the there's such a disconnect between, like, the typical way you would read a piece of music and what's happening in this piece here, you know? Yeah. Yeah, there was a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so you know, um, pile that onto the fact that there's only, what, two or three rehearsals, and then you got to perform it, you know? Um, and all of this to say is that um, you guys just nailed it. I mean, I when I listened back to the performance like two or three days ago, I listened to it and I was like, you know, I wanna, I'm gonna follow the score. I haven't looked at this in a long time. And I followed your part, I followed Amanda's part on viola and then I followed the percussion parts. And like all of you were really nailing like for example, you and you and Amanda were getting all the contour of the pitches, right? Like you were following like low to high and like getting all the um, the characteristic sounds and, and techniques that was called for and stuff. And and it's just like the the musicianship required to do that in that amount of time. I mean, you guys just nailed it. And, and it's so exciting to be able to look back on. Um, let's see. So so I mean. Here's the viola clef, which is a similar thing. She has the same sort of register staff, right? Where the pitch is represented by how far these lines come down. And then her register, instead of, you know, because it's she uses bow to create the sound. So this is this staff represents the bow position and bow pressure. So 
this top line is playing on the bridge. This line down here is playing over the fingerboard. And even with the, the violin part, it's like I, I asked her, I, I called for the amount of pressure that they were putting on the bow, how fast the bow was going across the strings, that's what these numbers represent, um, the position of the bow, and then, um, I don't know, I mean, I think other, oh yeah, and then these, these curvy lines here represent like how stable the bow is as she's bowing, like, like she's not shaking the hand a little, you know, like. <laughs> Yeah. It's, it's um, all this to say that you all threw this together in two to three rehearsals and, and it's, it's so exciting to, to look back on. Um, I would, I would be so excited to, to, to know if you were to perform this today, mm -hmm. how, how, how how different from from the first time you performed it five years ago and what you, where you were at today? I'm gonna to stop sharing my screen now because I want to I want to get back to just talking. But yeah, how, so how different would that be for you? I, I was thinking about that last night and this morning because I listened to it last night and I listened to it again uh, this morning with my coffee. Was like thinking about back to the things that I struggled with as as a performer in that moment and the things that. I have changed in these five years as far as my ability to play the saxophone. Um, so the first thing would just be like, I, I would be better at the multiphonics in, in regards of just purity of having them come out, all the tones of them speaking, having it be super stable. Cause like, even I listened to the recording, some of them were cutting it in and out, which was kind of cool. Um, but again, not as you've notated it here. Um, but I remember, uh, I think it was Christopher Adler, who was another one that was there that helping um, on these indeterminate like line pitches is from, well, I guess we're calling it traditional upbringing, is I couldn't avoid just normal like diatonic mm. tonal, <laughs> tonalness to it. Um, as far as like what I was just playing random notes, like I, my fingers subconsciously resorted back to just like normal, your 12 normal chromatic notes. And through my studies i've done a lot more stuff with quarter tones and eighth tones and stuff um i would apply a lot more of those to avoid any sort of just pitch centrality i guess um right. and, and using just even just western 12 tones um to avoid any of that just to make it not seem like it make it seem completely random <laughs> opposed to where my fingers always resorted to um those are the big two things I, I would I would change. Um, if I had more time, I do would be a little bit more accurate with with the mouthpiece <laughs> and airbox. All right. <laughs> um, and then just work on because because I was looking at the score because I, I still have the original score from from when we did it, <laughs> the oversized score. Uh, thinking about direction, I think that's something that I didn't even didn't even cross my mind when we did it about like where these climactic points are within all the parts and, and giving the, the randomness direction mm. um, to, to give it forward motion and maybe pull back and, and things that I would do with dynamics to help with that. Cause I do have some dynamics that, you know, I penciled in as we worked on it, but just bringing it more off the page, if that makes sense in, in a weird way yeah well that well that's amazing man i mean it's so interesting to hear you talk about all this stuff i wonder what it would be like to hear you have this conversation with your 2015 your 2015 self you know yeah. <laughs> yeah, 20, 2015 me would be like just play it play what's on the page play it right don't mess up right right yeah don't get lost i like and I, I like that 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 comment too about the directionality of it you know because i mean um one thing i'm gonna i'm gonna go back to uh sharing my screen real quick because i think this is worth mentioning with what the piece is um so in the program notes i wrote the concept for this piece is based off of the idea of the performer in the initial moment they come in contact with their instrument to make sound more spe more specifically it is the milliseconds before a perceptible pitch can occur during those milliseconds the phenomenon of noise takes place I don't know if that's accurate. Really. I don't know if that's accurate, honestly. I think um, I think there might be a little bit more nuance to it. 
but uh, okay. Uh, and then I give examples. Like when a guitarist plucks a string, the sound of the pick or nail clicking against the string uh, occurs the instant they come in contact. Or a percussionist lifting a, or a percussionist hitting a hard material that reverberates with a wooden drumstick. Prior to reverberation, the sound of the object connecting occurs. Or when a violist glides the bow across the strings before the string can fluctuate enough for pitch to take place, it is simply the sound of the bow rubbing against the string. And so your comment about the directionality of what's happening, I mean, even, <clears throat> oh, oh, actually, this is the section I wanted to get into, uh, the sec last, second paragraph. Within the phenomenon of noise exists instability. Rhythm, dynamics, and to a degree, pitch is inconstant. Timbre depends on the two connecting materials in question. Bow versus string will be different from pick versus string. Noise is at the heart of this piece, but more specifically, the instability that makes noise possible is the real driving force of what this piece represents. So um, that's the that last point there was what I kind of wanted to get at because it's like your comment about directionality and the randomness of it, even random sounds or objects or anything that's chaotic can have a direction or will have a direction in some way, you know? Um, like water flowing down a hill is very random in the direction that it goes or the path that it takes. But in many ways it's not because it's being dictated by the objects that are in the way. So you can almost kind of make a relative prediction as to where it's gonna go, you know? And so with this piece, it's like, each part on its own can probably exist independently of the board itself, you know? Yeah. Um, and with that in mind, then, I kind of wonder what it would be like if this were to be performed as four soloists performing together as opposed to an ensemble creating this homogenous piece, you know? Yeah, I, I think that would be, be... I think you'd be surprised at how vastly different it might sound. Um, oh I would be too. Because um, like even listening to the recording, there are times where as an ensemble, you can sense that forward direction. Like like it's going, it's leading to something. Like the, the part that always gets me is, is the homage to John Cage um, at the 433 second mark. Um, but like, you you hear things leading to that like the the seconds that precede that mm -hmm. and then there there's that silence and the initial contact so to speak of that re-entrance for that 15 seconds or whatever like how or i guess it'd be 27 seconds like how all of that it, it is giving a sense of direction where i think that might not come across it might come across uh if it was just four soloists that recorded independently Oh, maybe a neat experiment to do, to do. That's that's a yeah, that's that's an interesting one. Well, the thing too is that yeah, the homage, the tip of the hat to John Cage, right? Like <laughs> I'm going to uh, I'm going to share my screen again real quick just to show that section right there because I think it's I think it's a, an interesting moment. Uh, right here. So, you can see the timestamps above and then right there for 4 minutes and 33 seconds there's the first moment of silence in the entire piece and it happens for eight seconds and the reason why is because john cage died when he was 80 so i just sort of made that connection there um but this this is actually an interesting moment in the performance i'm gonna i have the video pulled up i think i want to uh, i want to go to it because let's see here uh, and the timestamp should be pretty accurate too actually um, actually, can you hear this? Yeah. You can hear that? Yeah. Okay. So one of the things I love is, uh, <laughs> Eric's face when he went during that, <laughs> during that pause, when Eric goes to reach for the thing, he is, he is going for it and nothing is going to stop him. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to play that moment real quick.
keep playing i had to uh, let that play because i love the way you guys ended that yeah. it was um it was awesome how how you and amanda m more or less met like pitch wise you know yeah and that probably would never happen again <laughs> yeah, exactly like <laughs> yeah there were so many things in that performance that like Things that have never happened before. I guess maybe they did. I don't know. But you never recorded and listen back to your soul in the moment. That like just lined up. Mm -hmm. But I think that's just like the innate musicianship of of trying to play chamber music, of making it, even though it is random per se, it's still a cohesive four part unit mm -hmm. to to make the piece come together. Yeah, yeah, man. I mean, even um, cause cause. I'm just gonna check the time real quick. All right, um, the we we used timers for it, right? Like some like cell phones and stuff. Yeah, I think all of us had iPads. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's right. It was like positioned under the the score. So so there were three stands. So each at least Amanda and I had two stands with our iPad underneath, and it was to initiate the the piece was just uh, and we just started the timer and and uses that use that as a guide. Yeah. Oh man uh it's i mean that right there it's already like i can completely see the 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 disconnect that makes in a performance because it's like like what you were just saying where as as an ensemble you're connecting and you're you're listening for each other and stuff like that but then you have to kind of look down and, and check the time you know which which in my mind that's that's like that would take me out of what i'm doing you know because now i'm thinking about something other than that um but yeah it's it's one of it's a the thing is is like with a piece like this it's i mean obviously it's not rhythmically notated so unless there's like a click in your ear that might be a way around it i guess yeah i mean i know it, at least in my score i i can't speak for the, the other performers is is how you did mark like halfway points in, in the larger time stamps just so i checkpoints mm -hmm. Even it was cool because we were able to run the piece enough in rehearsals that I could get a good sense of like how to pace so that I wasn't ahead or behind. Um, but yeah, just kind of ready and, and cues for like, this is when this performer does this sort of technique and, and, and like use that as a cueing point. Even if it doesn't line up, that's fine. But it's a cueing point to make sure that I'm not getting ahead nor behind. Right. Yeah. Oh my God. So many levels of, uh, of just coordination that's taking place. <laughs> yeah. I, I have to say too, um, a huge shout out to Amanda and like huge props to her because I remember uh, talking to her at the time and she was saying like, she's almost, I think strictly played the traditional canon of, of classical music. And I, I, I don't remember if she said she's played anything by a living composer at that time. Feel like I recall. I, I think I recall her saying that she's played like early twentieth century and stuff. So like, this was a huge step for her, and uh, she just, you know, she took it head on and 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 uh, like you know like all the overpressure stuff and like the quick bow movements and everything like that. Because um, at the you know at the very beginning of the piece, like a little bit over a minute into it, she has like this kind of cadenza. Mm -hmm. And my, my initial idea for this piece was each instrument was gonna have a cadenza, but then it kind of turned into like, oh, that, how am I gonna fit all that in five minutes, you know? And so um, she kind of ended up being the only one with a cadenza. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I thought it was, it was super cool and effective, just, just the cadenza and, and the techniques used within that, hmm. which kind of leads into like this softer, wispy stuff where I've got the, the teeth on radiant right just kind of this like scooting around the high note so it's like this intense viola cadenza into this kind of like meandering mousy sort of thing that leads back into controlled chaos <laughs> <laughs> I like that controlled chaos yeah yeah that's a lot of what it is it's uh oh man so I'm so glad to, to have ha had done all of that and and you know 
like have the opportunity to work with people like you and Amanda and, and Eric on, on a piece like this, because, um, I mean, like I said before, it, it, I haven't written anything like it, but as you know, a creative and, and a composer and stuff like that, writing this piece has drastically altered the way that I approach composing and stuff and what I think about. And, and, um, so it's, it's, you know, I just, I feel I'm so fortunate to have gotten to work with you guys and, and be at Neef North at that time. And like everything just kind of lined up beautifully, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it was, like I said, it's, it's a very memorable experience and, and a very crucial point in, in to leading to where I am. And I would assume you are today as far as where we are in our careers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I kind of want, I want to go back like and, and approach it with this newfound growth that I've I've gained over the past five years um just from a maturity standpoint in regards of music and just like a facility aspect on my instrument and and, and come in sort of swinging thinking that I can at least I'm in the right weight class opposed to punching <laughs> above the weight um referring back to the analogy I used earlier but yeah man it was it was crazy it was very life-changing <laughs> that's awesome yeah it's ah uh, it was crazy it definitely that's that's like there's really a it's it was crazy <laughs> yeah so what what have you um like what have you been working on as of lately in regard you know like we're talking all this stuff about like these crazy disconnect of of what the fingers and the mouth and the embouchure is doing and stuff like that but like what what sort of repertoire have you been playing lately since since graduating graduate school. Yeah, so so I had to record my whole recital in August. Um, and I kind of like took a week or two off just cause like that whole experience was frustrating to have to record it remotely and, and like not be having the experience of being able to perform it live. Um, it was kind of disheartening. Um, but yeah, I, I took a couple weeks off. Um, and right now I've just been working on just like fun rep i guess and then i'm not even like seriously working on it um like i'm working on uh the wagner and rhapsody just for fun and then mazlaka's sonata just get to try to upkeep technique um because after my undergrad i spent a lot of time just working i was teaching a lot i was working in a music store and i lost a lot of what i gained um, in my undergrad and that's one thing that i'm going to make sure does not happen after the completion of this degree is is getting busy with work and then letting everything that I just spent two years of my life getting better at, letting it just all go away. Even though you know, you know you can get to that point, you can get to it faster, but like just trying to upkeep. Um, and it, it's really frustrating to like work on stuff knowing that there's nothing to work towards mm. um, performance wise. Um, so yeah, just kind of just trying to upkeep my technique and, and get better at every I guess you could say traditional aspect, like being able better at playing it, playing in tune, intonation, just overall technique, overall control, so that when I do, when things do return to normal, I can just hit the ground running with all this ability, I guess you can say, or upkeep of techniques that you can just attack anything. That makes sense in a roundabout way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and and that's that's great, man. I mean, it's it's like, you know. In music school, we're trained to, to to always be striving to do these like, you know, work on these huge pieces that that um, like you said earlier, like way earlier in the conversation, like the music of the masters or like that the 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 performers that we all idolize and stuff like that. And it's like, oh my god, they put that to perfection, you know. But then having like like you said, like kind of taking a step back and like I'm just gonna play these things that I like to play, or at least just something that is just you know I enjoy it. And at the same time, I'm going to be focusing on the upkeep of, of, you know, maintaining technique and intonation and all that other stuff, you know? Yeah. You got to take a step back. Like you can't, it, that, and that's something that I always have to remind myself because I don't, <laughs> is like, you can't always redline, you know? <laughs> can't always be on. Yeah, like as a, as a musician, it's real easy to, I mean, we're all yes people. We say yes to everything. And, and it's really hard to say no. 
because you feel like you're losing out on a potential connection. You're losing out on potential money. Mm. Just because I said no to this one person for this thing, even if I've already committed something and you have to say no because you're committed to something else, like you feel like they're never going to ask you again because you said no in that instance. Because right. it, it's you don't want to lose any, any connections and you want to try to do everything you can. But you also don't want to burn out. I mean, burnout rate is real and it's something we don't think about until we've beyond burnout then you don't enjoy what you're doing and and you don't have ambition to do it because if you burn out like you're frustrated picking up your instrument or grabbing that manuscript paper if you're a composer and then what you're doing is not good because you're frustrated and you're doing it out of spite or out of necessity so just trying to find that joy of doing this because you know you like to do it but you know when it becomes a job it's really hard to balance that it's a job, but this is where my passion lies. Um, so that you're not doing it for the sake of just having to do it. That was that dude, you, you hit so many nails on the head with that one. And, and I have to say that uh, I, I think people need to hear that. Are you cool with me sharing that whole sound clip right there and putting it out there so people can get, get that, you know, advice. Yeah. Cause like, and in addition to that, like school, you're just doing what you're told and you're doing it because there is an objective at the end. Um, but also like remembering why you're doing this in the first place. You're doing it because you like it. And, and especially like in undergrad and I experienced it a lot in my graduate studies is like literally getting the heart of the case because I have to, and then like accomplishing nothing because I'm doing it because I have to mm -hmm. like, doing it because I want to, if that makes sense. It's, it's, and it burnout's a scary thing because some people burn out and then will never come back. Right. And yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, because it's so much easier to give into like negativity, you know, like feeling those bitter and, and resentful emotions is easier than putting in the harder work of, of finding the silver lining in things, you know, I mean, it's the same thing. And this, this isn't, this isn't, um, a, any disrespect or, or, or anything thrown at anyone, but like, it's a lot harder to work out and exercise. It takes more willpower than it does to just kind of sit down and eat food all day. You know? <laughs> yeah. And that, and that's, like I said, that's not an insult or anything. I mean, like I, love cake like <laughs> you know i love pizza I, I eat this stuff like as often as i can you know and um and i i work out like very periodically i'm not very regimented with it and stuff like that but you know these sort of things it's like it's so much harder to to um i don't know what you say like like the yeah the whole positivity of it all like to i don't know self-improvement right like yeah, because, like, I know for a fact I have burned bridges. Unintentionally, mm. um, some of them recent, some of them in the past, and, and I dwell on that. And, and I feel bad because I've let the stress of what is going on in my life and in that current moment dictate how I approach things. And, yeah, it sucks. And I, and I don't mean to show disrespect to anybody, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I've apologize to anyone that I have in the past because like we're all human we, we all let things get to us and, and some people handle it better than others and and the best thing you can do is realize what has happened and not dwell on it but allow that to inform your future decisions right um, in regards of like not being disrespectful, not leaving somebody out, not talking down about anybody or to anybody, even if it, even if you are like in an instructor student position, mm -hmm. just because that student isn't carrying their weight, you still want to inspire them and you don't want to talk down to them to allow them to achieve this frustration burnout point. Mm -hmm. um, if they come to that realization on their own, awesome, good for them, but it should never be coerced by an outside force. If, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that, that makes total sense. And that was incredibly clear. It's that, that I think is part of the trouble too. Um, and, and, you know, relating that all back to music school and stuff like that, it's like, 
my my personal experience in I, I went through three different colleges for music degrees and everything. There was I don't ever recall a professor saying that you have to do this, you have to do that in order to get to this step. Um, I think a lot of that stuff, at least for me, was like self-imposed, you know, to think like, I need to be doing this because that's what people want or whatever. But when you look at the careers of people who are, are quite successful and are thriving, they're all incredibly diverse in regards to what they're doing. You know, I mean, <clears throat> it's like the music of, and I'm a composer, like, you know, I know composers, I'm a composer. So like, I know more composers than I can name performers and stuff like that, right? But I mean, look at the music of like Sarah Perkins Schneider and then the music of, um, I don't know, Ashley Fury or like, um, I don't know, another contemporary, Alex Minchek, right? Mm -hmm. Like all of them are, have vastly different careers, vastly different music, but all of them are thriving, mm -hmm. you know? And, um, and I think part of that is because they, they, they didn't exactly decide, like fall within any specific, um, uh, like, you know, mold, whatever you want to say. And, <clears throat> and like what you were saying before, where, that like the whole burnout and stuff like that. Like they, this is probably, what they're doing is what they love. They enjoy doing the, 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 the styles and the things that they experiment with, you know? And so I don't imagine that at any point for them, it's been like, God, oh, I gotta go to work today and write a piece of music, you know? I mean, I'm, I'm sure there was some burnout along the way where it's like a lot to do and exhaustion setting in, but um that's with anything <laughs> yeah and and i can only speak on music so when when i say what i'm about to say i mean i cannot relate it to any other profession because i've never experienced it but the stress of like music is real <laughs> um and because like even in regards of like the current situation we're in right now with covid is like every form of arts has just been shut down to absolutely nothing in a heartbeat and, and the stress of that's weighing on a lot of people because i think i saw like the, the met opera isn't going to return till fall of 2021 like that's income that's something that somebody spent their entire life doing and i know there are many other jobs that have shut down so i'm just relating just to music so if anyone is like oh my gosh what is he saying but like allowing finding a way to turn that stress into motivation opposed to letting it shut you down mm. um and and like we were talking about with like zoom and everything how it's opened all these avenues of collaboration like using that positive energy and motivation to create something new or to keep things going mm. as you're just accepting defeat um in, in a regard it's it's a stressful thing because like there's never a point where you can come be complacent come become complacent because there's no aspect of music that is and i'm not saying that there is with other jobs either but like you're always trying to make a better student you're always trying to play harder rep you're always trying to make yourself better and as a composer i'm assuming you're always trying to make better music you're always trying to make bigger music mm. um bigger works and and trying to like push yourself you have to beat your previous self in a sense um yeah it's it's that is an what attributes to burnout i think is that's a part of it it's it's hard <laughs> yeah that's that's uh so true and and well put um yeah it's especially during this time like you said with covid it's um it's it's prevalent and <clears throat> and so all of us are definitely trying to figure out how how we're going to deal with all this and what we're doing and stuff and and things are, you know, gradually opening and opportunities are increasing, I think, you know, because now we're all sort of used to it in a way. I don't want to say used to it, but it's like we're, we're, we're learning to work with it. Yeah, we're, we're all becoming more knowledgeable about what we can do and what we can't do. Mm -hmm. And we're being innovative in the means to be able to still do what we do. Parts of being safe <laughs> yeah yeah that's the exactly 
this this froze up for a second there, but uh, can you hear me? Okay, yeah, I got you. Yeah, I <laughs> right, I just wanted to make sure it was still good. Um, yeah, man, it's the this is all all really great stuff, and like so many things that you said within this whole conversation, I think is just so useful for a lot of people. Um, but so one last question I want to ask you is, is what is, how, are there any things that you do to try to make sure that you're still focusing on just being okay and like doing the things that you want to be doing or like things you feel like you should be doing or. Yeah. So that's a good question. Cause like, there's been a lot of reflection <laughs> over the past six months. Um, a lot of, I, w I wouldn't say depression, but depressing thoughts in, in regards of like, what is going to happen? And is everything that I just did, everything that I've done, is that all for not um, for the time being? Because like, you can only go so long with doing nothing in regards of like work and income and stuff. Um, just trying to do what makes you happy in regards of like, going back to the roots of why you're doing what you're doing. Mm. Like, why do I play saxophone? Why did I go get a performance degree? Why am I doing this? And when you can answer that question as to why, because I enjoy it, because I enjoy teaching saxophone lessons. I, I enjoy collaborating with other musicians and, and getting to meet people like everyone that we met at Nethroff in 2015 and finding a way to accommodate some of those means on your own hmm. in your own practice so like yeah the the two pieces i'm working on right now are hard but i'm also doing them because i enjoy them would they have sufficed for my studies yeah but did i work on it no but i'm, I'm just kind of like slapping something on the stand and playing with with the idea of i have no performance for this i don't have to make it perfect i can just enjoy working on it <laughs> i'm going back because i mean i think as as musicians we all enjoy practicing we don't when we're in school because we're being forced to sometimes but finding that fun and just getting your horn out and working on something and, I, and i'm assuming it'd be the same thing with as a composer is getting a blank piece of manuscript out and just jotting down ideas with with no end goal in mind just what can i come up with and who knows it might create something incredible with no aspiration um or deadline to be able to create something incredible Fantastic, man. That's, I, I love all of that. I think, I think that's actually a really good spot to, uh, to stop the recording here. Um, yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to stop that unless, is there anything else you want to, you want to tag on there? And, and, and I, I don't have too much necessarily. I, I yapped a lot. So <laughs> kind of talking in circles a little bit there at the end, but Hey, no, no. Well, that was, that was definitely the point of this. Um.